0: of the top commentators in compliance get together? They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. This week, Christy and I take on topics as diverse as a potential world international corruption court, Goldilocks compliance, of Florida man makes another appearance, and a wide variety of other stories I know that you will enjoy. If you enjoy our podcast, I hope you will Subscribe, write, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grandhart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox. And this week we're covering the possibility of an international anti bribery court, the excitement of the new data privacy framework and the U.S. adequacy decision win. A new study that quantitatively proves that remote workers are more ethical than their in-office counterparts. And the adventures of Florida man running from police to find a Wi-Fi connection. What is that about? Stay tuned. But first, Tom, how has your week been? And what is the most interesting development?
0: Pretty good so far. And I am learning how to do very short ebooks available for sale on Amazon. They're essentially white papers, but they're reformated, reformatted into an ebook format. So did a chat GPT series a couple of weeks ago. And so I got about 25 pages out of the transcripts. So I'm writing an ebook. And so we're going to see Brilliant. how that goes.
1: Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, stay tuned.
0: And I have, I think my second children's book comes out this month.
1: Ah to do another interview for the blog. Brilliant. Love it.
0: Yes. So and yourself?
1: I am finishing, I'm writing my my next book too, by the way it's going to go live on LinkedIn that we're actually writing it. And uh, November 30th is the publication date. It's, we'll talk all about it, but that's exciting too over here.
0: Well, cool. So there was a really interesting article in the FCPA blog by Martin Kinney. And I, wouldn't, I don't know Martin, so I can't know that he's a curmudgeon, much in the way of our good friend, John May, but he writes curmudgeonly blog posts from time to time. And this one wasn't 100% curmudgeon, but it trended curmudgeon. And it was about a idea that's been bandied about of a world and a corruption court. And Martin uh, says that, and it's it came up again because the Labor Party, who is not in power in the United Kingdom, they're still uh, in the minority, have come out in favor of the UK joining that type of body. And Martin really says, or Kenny says, that Although it's certainly a noble idea, it has a lot of real world, real politics uh, difficulties uh, to be implemented. I would parenthetically note that the World Corruption Police is an idea that's been around for at least five years, maybe 10 years, and even the Global Anti-Corruption Blog, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, they have cautioned against it. So this is not curmudgeonly only. This is some very well thought of commentators have pointed out the problems in this. And Martin, once again, he points them out from the court perspective, not the world anti-corruption police. And the biggest problem is the countries that would respect this court and respect a ruling from this court are countries that already have robust anti-corruption laws. And those countries that either don't have anti-corruption laws or wouldn't respect them, really doesn't matter if you get a judgment against them. They're just going to say, nano, 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 nano. Or, la, 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 I can't hear you, Jeffrey. I don't know which. But that it will be very difficult to enforce a judgment in you name the corrupt country. Also, if we use the um, criminal in The Hague, the war crimes court, as an example, the United States has never joined that. So query, would the United States ever join this type of court? My suspicion is no, we wouldn't. And that's administration agnostic prognosti- prognostication. So, he is correct that it is a noble idea. I'm loath uh, to figure out a way to make it work in practice, but it's out there, and we've got the Labor Party thing there for it. So I think that discussion will be engendered, certainly as a part of the UK election run-up, and perhaps when Labor comes back into power, not if, we will get, uh, so my wife can't vote because she's an American citizen so I don't have to negate her Tory vote we will get some debate in the United Kingdom, but I just can't imagine the United States would ever join them.
1: No, I mean, so when I was, for lack of a better word, doing a dissertation to graduate law school, I did it on the International Criminal Court and war crimes tribunals, as well as where within the United States judicial structure, you can prosecute war crimes that happen internationally. So it's kind of a, a fixture of mine, something I'm fascinated by. And it worked relatively well with things like, you know, Yugoslavia, but won't work and hasn't worked with other types of powers that that won't join it and won't submit to its jurisdiction. So I see all kinds of problems with this. And I must say, I kind of side with a curmudgeon on it. But I think that it's a nice idea in theory, but that ultimately, the DOJ and its work internationally and in all of the different ways that regulators have come together in these big prosecutions That that's really the way of the future and the sharing of the spoils, as it were, or the sharing of the recovery is really the best we're going to get in this perspective.
0: And that's a great point because I think we have seen incredible success around that. Even with if we look at Goldman Sachs and one MDB, I think eight or nine countries participated in that overall fine penalty sanctions, et cetera. So it can work, it has worked, and I completely agree with you that I think that's. I don't think it's the best we can get. I think that's the wave of the future. You are interested in something the Department of Commerce has talked about. What did they do that so interested you?
1: Well, uh oh So I'm a privacy nerd, as we all know. This was such a big day, this this July 10th. So the European Commission issued its adequacy decision, concluding that the United States ensures an adequate level of protection for personal data transferred from the EU to U.S. companies under the new data protection framework. So we have been in this nightmare where there have been horrible contractual clause obligations, binding corporate rules, all kinds of nightmares to try to get data transferred to the United States without all of these hoops. And there's been multiple rounds of shooting this stuff down. We had safe harbor before that was shot down. We had privacy Shield that was shot down. So for years, companies have been in this horrible position where they literally can't transfer data back and forth between the United States and the EU. And it's bonkers, in my opinion. The Biden administration came up with an executive order in October of 2022 to try to fill the holes that the European Court of Justice said were creating this problem, most of which had to do with US surveillance capacities and the fact that Europeans had no recourse to say, cut it out, right? So, what happens now is that we have a new self certification game in town that allows the US companies to bind themselves to a series of agreements that will allow them to move data to and from the EU and Switzerland without those enormous hassles. And there's a branching thing about the UK because of UK GDPR. But basically, today, compliance officers, you can go to the US Department of Commerce website and look up the data privacy framework, which is usually referred to as DPF, and you can sign up to enjoy the benefits, which is fantastic. Now, Tom, everyone is delighted about this, except our old friend, Max Schrimms. So for those of you who handle privacy issues, you'll recall that twice in the past years, Mr. Schrems has taken his anger about the EU-U.S. transfer agreements to the EU Court of Justice, and he has been favored both times. So that's why Safe Harbor and Privacy Shield were both, both torpedoed. Mr. Schrems has already come out saying, yes, I'm going to take this back to the court and try to invalidate the adequacy decision Legal experts disagree on whether the Court of Justice is likely to come down on Shrim's side for the third time. However, we can all breathe easy for a bit. The case is likely to take years to come to a resolution. I, for one, am thrilled with this development, and I think it is a huge deal. Tom, do you agree? How important do you think this is?
0: Uh, I don't think it's going to hold muster. I think Smack Shrim's will win again. I think he'll win in two years. And I think in two years, we'll be right back where we were 60 days ago. Uh, I just can't see that this passes muster in terms of US spy agencies looking at foreigners' data. And I don't think they're ever going to give that right up. We can dress it up, put a lot of lipstick on it. I'm not going to say what it is, but it looks like that and it oinks like that. So um, I think Mr. Shrims is going to be successful again.
1: Well, I have a little bit more hope than you do. I think that some point you have to go, this is lunacy. Everyone's ignoring the SCCs and the binding rules. And they're just, you know, taking a cost benefit analysis and saying, forget it. And I think we've done a lot of progress. So we'll see Tom, because clearly we will find out whether Shrems is successful again, but we'll find out about this. And now Tom, the next article you sent me, I just, every year, every week you basically send me something that I think, oh my word, how is this possible? I'm going to turn it over to you.
0: So this is actually one of the most important trial court decisions we have had in the FCPA world, certainly pretrial. And it was as unique a set of circumstances as any case we could have because we had CEO and general counsel or chief legal officer alleged involvement in the bribery. And for those who don't remember, it involved cognizant technologies Even with that level of alleged involvement in the bribery scheme, the company sustained a declination. And this was a stunning, and I can't emphasize how stunning it was result, largely because they self disclosed within two weeks. The board of directors directed self disclosure within two weeks of finding out about this. And so it set the gold standard for self disclosure, gold standard for result. But there was this other point that got raised in this case. Because of those first two, and the former officers, they were both terminated, had you know coverage, and these fully funded the criminal defenses of both individuals, because the Department of Justice mm-hmm. indicted both of them criminally, both gentlemen, they were they weren't men. And so the first thing that happened was their defense lawyers basically had an unlimited budget to do everything and across the world and exceeded it. They didn't boil the ocean. They blew it up, put it back in, looked at it again, froze it, melted it, and continued to do so. And all of that was not what this case was, (laughs) or this motion. This motion was the CEO and general counsel were interviewed prior to self-disclosure. They were then interviewed after self-disclosure, and they wanted the internal investigation which was turned over to the Department of Justice which was the basis of the criminal indictment to be thrown out because the their claim was that the DOJ directed the investigation after self-disclosure and that they did not receive federal criminal procedural protections the court uh, and i have to credit the court because they bent over backwards to allow the defendants to develop a record which i think will hold up on any appeal and that's directly from the court. They allowed motions, they allowed discovery, and they allowed, I think, a two, perhaps three-day hearing. They allowed full briefing, and then the court ruled. And what the court ruled was that no, the Department of Justice did not direct the internal investigation, or I should say, the cognizant internal investigation, although that internal investigation was done by external counsel. Any of the report that was turned over was certainly discoverable the background to the report was discoverable but that wasn't the issue the issue here was that it should be thrown out and the indictment should be withdrawn or dismissed and the court said no the doj did not direct this and indeed the court pointed to the first round of interviews which were done before self disclosure and the court said in those interviews there was enough a colorable claim for the doj to move forward and but that the decision terminate was largely based on those two interviews. So a complete and I must emphasize complete victory by the department of, for the department of justice all of the concerns that many courts and commentators had that the DOJ was directing investigations after self-disclosure I think now not succeed I think this will be the seminal case there may be other cases where this is claimed but with a developed record in this case the length of the hearing court bending over backwards to give the defendants every opportunity to show this. If they can't show it in this case, I don't think it can be shown. So uh, the DOJ has got to be resting easier. I think probably people who do internal or external investigations at the request of in-house counsel are going to be resting easier and you don't have to invoke federal criminal procedural protections. You still have to give up John warnings and you still have to have to provide counsel or you may choose to provide counsel to your employees. but <clears throat> Miranda warnings, et cetera, are not required. So this, I don't know if this was under the radar and I'm a complete geek or this was as significant as I think it is, but I thought it was really significant. It's been fascinating to watch. But I just want one more time to give the court credit for going out of their way to allowing the defendants to fully develop a record that I think will not only hold up on appeal, but be the standard, what we all follow, whatever our roles are in an investigation, Kristen.
1: And I definitely think that any non-lawyer now is going, what on earth are we talking about? But I think that it's, Tom, what struck me about this was the argument about the 5th amendment that you can't take a 5th amendment you know I refuse to incriminate myself when you're in an internal investigation right that's cuz it's not the government that's interrogating you and you know the question of if you're in an internal investigation should you be thinking that way that you don't want to incriminate yourself or that you need a lawyer to basically you know withdraw you from from an interview if you've done something wrong tom and somebody came to you as a lawyer would you tell them just not to participate no okay
0: so <laughs> What I would do is I think the company should provide counsel to employees. And even if the company pays for it, I think that provides, engenders a level of trust and develops, allows you to sort of keep your employees from running and being whistleblowers or other nefarious, or I shouldn't say nefarious other routes. But I think if you're going to hire somebody and you're going to send them out, I think you need to give them the opportunity for protections. The The issue of um, the other issue that the court considered was whether or not the even at this level of CEO and general counsel, the company could have the company did force these interviews by threatening termination. I think the court said that that's of no import. So
1: um, it's a big one. This is definitely a big one. Big one. <laughs> All right, well, let's turn to more of the day-to-day that we deal with as compliance officers. Thank goodness that we don't deal with that every day. The next thing I wanted to talk about was an article from George Porter at the FCPA blog titled, Sometimes the Best Due Diligence is Done on Foot. So and Porter acknowledges the value of online due diligence and remote pictures and, and being able to take information from the internet. But he then talked about three specific situations where it is valuable to perform on-the-ground due diligence. The first one he cites is using a site visit to obtain the most up-to-date information and to compare it to the information gathered from open source findings. So he was noticing that what you see on the ground may not be the same as the information presented by the company in their documentation or answers to due diligence questionnaires. The second he said is verifying that a business exists on the ground as addresses aren't always what they seem. And the third is verifying a residential address. Personally, I think that Porter was way too circumspect with this article. On the ground review is so critical for any real high risk third party or acquisition situation or acquisition target. And for us, one of the things we're counseling more and more clients to do is to do regular on-site audits with their high-risk suppliers for modern slavery. It's almost impossible to do a modern slavery review if you're not there looking at people or talking to them, because typically whatever the supplier says is going to be, we're great, the contract terms are great, no worries, everything's fine. And I think you can't do this without on the ground. So, Tom, what do you think? about this, like on the ground surveillance is expensive. It is expensive. It has to be in local language. Frequently you're hiring an audit firm, you know, across the world. But I think that it's really, really important. Do you, when do you think it's worth going to the expense of having an on-site audit or performing that on the ground due diligence?
0: So let me take the audit first. I think you absolutely positively have to do that on the ground, you have to go there. Uh, I had a friend that used to be at Baker Hughes and that's what she did for years. And she would spend a week getting ready, two weeks on site, a week in Houston writing up her report. And you have to marshal all the documents. You have to have everything ready. You have to go out there. You have to do exactly what you said. You have to make sure the addresses match up. You have to look at the facilities. You have to sit and, I don't want to say interrogate because it's not that at all, but you have to test. And you need to look across if it's a business partner, whether on the sales side or the supply chain side, if it's sales side, obviously higher risk, but your critical suppliers, you need to do this too. And Beggar Hughes had a very robust program because it was her, she and her team. Uh, she had forensic auditors going with her. She had internal control specialists if warranted. So I think on the audit side, that's absolutely mandatory. Perhaps you could do that every couple of years or on a, rot- a rotational basis. However, you might choose to do that. In terms of boots on the ground due diligence. I heard of that phrase in 2007. So I'm at a look. <laughs> I was, although I'm continually reminded every time I asked the DOJ, what should I write about? They said, keep writing about the same thing. And maybe that's what this is. But, you know, we've all known boots on the ground is critical. Um, in certain high-risk situations, used to be worried about mailbox addresses or fraudulent addresses. And, you know, the only way to check that was, physically to go by and look at the space. I hope we're past that. But your point is absolutely well taken. When warranted, a boots on the ground investigation is mandatory. And if we have somehow forgotten that, uh, thank you to the author for reminding us. Uh, If he's reminding us because he's acceding to what the DOJ has suggested, thank you once again. But it's been a part of due diligence since at least I've been in this space in 2007, probably long before that. So Boots on the ground, due diligence on is absolutely positively warranted when high-risk appear or red flags cannot be cleared without in-person investigation. But on the audit side, now that we're out of COVID, you must do that.
1: Absolutely. Well, we had a big shakeup over with uh, SEC and cyber. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Sure. So the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission voted on the proposed rules for cybersecurity disclosure And the headline, Christy, was, of course, four days, companies have four days to announce publicly if there's been a breach, if it's material, and uh, four days after the company discovered it. So there's a little bit of wiggle room here that I wish would have been tightened up, but it's certainly an improvement over what was previous in place when companies would just not disclose because they didn't think it was in their interest to do so, not recognizing it wasn't their data that was stolen, it was their customers, i.e. people like you and me. So that was one, probably the biggest headline. An interesting item that was not a part of this rule was the original proposal was that there be a cyber resource on the board. And so that was not included. So I thought that was interesting. I think cyber resource must be available to the board, but not necessarily on the board of directors. So, uh, A big change in terms of the disclosure requirements. Matt Kelly wrote a great blog post on this, and that's what we've, or we will link to in the show notes. So uh, check that out. You're a public company. uh, This is something that you absolutely have to uh, abide by. And then last sort of controversial point was the disclosure requirement must occur even if law enforcement doesn't want you to do so. There's a waiver process to get that, but you have to appeal directly to the attorney general and query getting Merrick Garland on the phone. So I don't think that's going to be a very successful. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot more disclosures. And then of course, the fallout from that.
1: This is going to be so interesting to watch. Um, I was talking to my husband, Jonathan, about the previous rule that they have to disclose. They would have had to disclose cyber comprehension at the board level. And he said, well, somebody who is 56 recently replaced their smart, their uh, flip phone with a smartphone. So, you know, that's real expertise. But I, I think that trying to talk about your board expertise here is going to be limited. And I think that was smart that they took that away. But so Tom, if you're in a private company, does this have any effect? Is there any of this sort of best practice that you need to think about? Do you think this changes anything for the not public world?
0: I think this this becomes the standard, and I think this is what people will expect. And I think if they private companies choose not to follow this, I think they will have serious potential liability through shareholder suits in Delaware, perhaps another other regulatory environment. Remember GDPR seventy two hours, so you know you don't have much time. And the other thing, Christy, that Matt pointed out that we should certainly talk about is what's how does this impact compliance and I see it directly in a couple of ways. One is you absolutely must be in this data loop if you're in the compliance function because if a self-disclosure has to be made, I think compliance needs to be a part of that. And I think compliance needs to be a part of your crisis response team. you don't have a crisis response team for a data breach, get one tomorrow after you listen to this podcast. You can contact Christy, you can contact Jonathan Armstrong, you can contact a lot of people to get one. But a crisis response team to manage this is absolutely mandatory. In fact, Compliance Week wrote a series on fictional compliance uh, crisis response team and how they practiced it. Everybody had their role. They knew what to do, and they knew how to get out of the situation. So get your crisis response team up to R, do some scenario planning, and then practice so when it does happen, you're ready.
1: Practice tabletop at least annually. It's always in our reports, so... All right, let's switch gears to remote workers and continuing in our theme of remote workers actually are a great idea and they're in fact more ethical and there is a compelling new article that was in fast company titled new data reveals that remote workers are likely more ethical than their office counterparts and here's why doesn't that make you want to read it I was like yes please. So the article focuses on a peer-reviewed study in the European Financial Management Journal, and it followed bankers working from home and those in the office during the lockdown period in the UK. So very specific. That's why it could be peer-reviewed. They found that the traders working from home had approximately a 7.3% chance of misconduct alerts during that period, while their in-office traders had a 376 chance of misconduct alerts during the same period. I mean, that is literally more than a 1 in 3 chance of a misconduct alert for any of these traders, which is a little bit crazy. The researchers found that there were likely two reasons for this misconduct and they're related the first is confirmation bias so in the office if a trader hears inside information which they are much more likely to hear whispered around they are much more likely to act on it because they perceive everyone else to be doing it especially as they're all sharing this information if the trader is at home frankly they're much less likely to hear it because they're not there and are less willing or able to act on it And the second reason is what they called status quo bias, which means the tendency of people to prefer things to say the same rather than to deal with change. So the theory is that if the in-office workers are used to seeing their peers misbehave, then a shift toward ethical conduct could feel threatening or unusual, not in line with everyone else, creating their kind of social ostracizing, whereas people working from home don't have that same challenge. So they aren't used to seeing misconduct all day, every day, and are therefore less likely to see misconduct as the status quo. The author ends the article stating that ethical behavior is what we should strive for, so we should support things like remote workers. Now, Tom, I worked on a financial crimes investigation with traders in the UK and Switzerland, and studying what we were looking for was manipulation in the LIBOR. So I must've read a million chat messages between traders on the Bloomberg server, and there was some seriously awful behavior going on. They were all in the office. Do you think it would have been different if they're working from home? I mean, is this because they're looking at the trader environment or is this real that people simply act differently when they're home?
0: Uh, Well, first of all, I was just, I don't want to say stunned by this article, but it actually confirmed for me what I felt intuitively and that the work from home environment can actually provide benefits and does provide benefits for your culture and doing business ethically and compliant. So number one, kudos for that finding. And for your pointing out to our group, in terms of traders, I don't want to say it's only males, but largely males. And you put a bunch of boys together in that kind of environment. They tend to do stupid boy things. And maybe just, you know, being at home with the taming influence of their wives will help them from being less stupid. Um, But I I just think they were more conscious of what they were doing. And the simple physical separation uh, led to that. But I think this is a fabulous finding. And something that compliance professionals need to start considering uh, around the return to work or hybrid work or other forms of of work that non traditional work that we could use going forward. So, our good friend, um, oh, before I get to Jeff Kaplan, I got a shout out to Rick Messick at the Global Anti Corruption Blog. And he has had a series of posts about the reconstruction of. Ukraine, the fight against corruption in Ukraine. Rick is uh, very involved in this, and he's obviously very passionate about it. The last three posts on the Global Anti-Corruption Blog site have been about this issue. The um, United Nations estimates that $400 billion plus will be spent on the reconstruction of Ukraine, and this will be the biggest construction project in the world since the Marshall Plan in World War II. And that given the history of Ukraine around corruption, this is absolutely mandatory that Ukraine clean up its corruption problem. It's mandatory for Ukraine because number one, to get access to capital, they're going to be required. If they want EU membership, it's going to be required. If they want NATO membership, it's going to be required. So it's a huge effort. I absolutely applaud Rick for at least big a part of this effort. We're going to link to a little bit of the anti-corruption blog on our show notes. So I hope you'll check out Rick's writings because it's a variety of areas. But this is going to be one of the biggest international issues going forward. And as soon as the war ends, and it will end at some point, the construction rebuild of Ukraine is going to start. And we all in anti-corruption are going to have a, a part in that fight going forward.
1: I mean, we really can't have another oil for food scandal, right? So we need to get to a place where it's possible. Do you think that there is going to be political will within Ukraine to shift all these things?
0: I think there has to be. There will be. But I think it's because Ukraine recognizes it's in its self-interest to do so, one, for the construction, but two, also to get the protections of the EU membership and NATO Uh, They're going to have to satisfy both of those groups, and that's going to lead to the long-term, you know, potential life of the country of Ukraine.
1: Yeah, well, we're certainly hoping that the reconstruction starts sooner than later. It's definitely hard to watch all the things that are happening there, so fingers crossed for that. Totally shifting gears, I want to talk about AI. So the next article comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it was titled, White House says Amazon, Google, Meta, and Microsoft agree to AI standard safeguards, which they did. So the Biden administration recently reached a deal with these big tech companies to put more guardrails against the use of artificial intelligence. Now, very important to note that these are voluntary commitments, as the companies themselves were quick to point out in their public statements. That doesn't engender a lot of confidence in me personally, but okay. While there is no enforcement capacity in the guidelines, they are largely seen as a step in the right direction, right? We've got agreement on these. So the guidelines include posting a watermark to identify images, music, and other kind of art that are created by AI. It's a good plan. Unfortunately, there are already Reddit threads describing how to remove those watermarks, and companies have allowed that to happen. So critics note that the new voluntary guidelines aren't a substitution for legislation, which Congress is discussing, and the Biden administration is also actively developing an executive order to govern the use of AI. And the companies note that they've invested a tremendous amount of money trying to combat that misinformation, hate speech, and bias in answers given by large language models like ChatGPT, but Tom, I am curious if you have ever seen the television show Silicon Valley on HBO? Because in that in that fabulous show, there is an episode where all the big tech companies in the valley. It's a semi-fictional world get together to agree to a voluntary code of Tethics, which is tech ethics. And I couldn't stop thinking about the farcical outcomes that happened from that effort when I read this. Do you think this is smoke and mirrors? Do you think that it's actually gonna do anything? Is it important just to show that they're trying? What, what's your take on this?
0: Um tech
1: technics. Tethics. Ethics. <laughs> ethics <laughs> okay. code.
0: No, I haven't seen the show.
1: You really should is fabulous.
0: I should. Given that our government can't seem to do anything, um, the only period, period, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. the only place we're going to get any sort of uh, systematic approach is from self regulation. And if that's where we got to start, it's better than nothing. The companies are doing this because they perceive it's in their self interest. So, query, what does that mean for these self regs? But it's at least a step. And perhaps it's a step that might lead to something more robust but um, we just seem to be unable to systemically regulate tech in a meaningful way, and and that includes data, data privacy, data storage. Um, so I'm um, reluctant to think that these safeguards around AI are gonna be very much, but for my little world, they're not gonna impact me because I don't go over the line.
1: Perfect, I like
0: it, all right. Um, Jeff Kaplan. If you don't know Jeff Kaplan, you should. And Jeff Kaplan can say something in three words that usually takes me about a thousand to say. And he writes the conflict of interest blog. He's certainly one of the grandfathers, godfathers, fathers in our field. And, and he's a, he's a great guy, but he wrote about Goldilocks compliance and that is just the perfect metaphor for compliance. Now he wrote about it in the context of, um, If you have a zero tolerance policy, will that drive reporting and conduct underground so that people don't report? And the answer is yes, it will. But I thought the larger point was have the compliance program that's just right for your organization. And you do that by assessing your risk. And really focusing on, you know, what's the highest, the top three, top five, top highest risk of our organization around compliance? And maybe it's data privacy, maybe it's cybersecurity, maybe it's, gosh, all of our plants are within thirty miles of a coastline. Maybe they were in a great place in Northern California, but all of a sudden, maybe, Ege and E is too close to us. You know, all of the things that may not have been obvious risks before may need to be considered now. So think about your risk, assess your risk and put a program in place to manage your risk as to zero tolerance. If you ban facilitation payments, they just go underground and people make them and don't report them. And then you're stuck with, well, we don't even know what's going on. And that's for me, the easiest, easiest example, but zero tolerance will, if people are going to engage in the behavior, you'll never know about it. And then you'll find out about it because SEC will send you a letter or the FBI is knocking at your door.
1: You know, I have written about this and very controversially said I I have zero tolerance for zero tolerance policies. I think that it's lunacy for a company to say we have zero tolerance for bribery we have zero tolerance for modern slavery yeah and that's probably true in a very large way but if you have little incremental violations or you have small things that happen a lot of the times you have disciplinary procedures well guess what that's not zero right if you're gonna say zero you mean zero you mean fire you mean out right so i think that we have to be really careful with those words because they can engender our employees to go, well, the companies doesn't believe in any of this. They say all this nonsense, and they don't really live by it. So I think zero tolerance is is dangerous, and it should have zero place in your policies and written written documentation.
0: So on to our friend Florida man.
1: <laughs> what has
0: he done that so intrigued you?
1: Okay. So this one is this is we're finishing on a high as we always do with our amazing last stories. So we're going to continue our Florida man theme and, Florida man is out there causing mayhem again this time in Daytona Beach. So a Florida man is facing charges after he stole an SUV and was chased by the police. never a good start. He jumped out of the car while it was still running and the car crashed into a building. So the man temporarily escaped on foot, ran to a hotel, and unfortunately for him, the police did find him and said hotel room. And when he was asked why all of this happened, He said it was because he was looking for a Wi-Fi connection. So frustrating, right? You got to steal cars and knock them into buildings and run to hotels. So unfortunately for him, the gentleman is currently being held in jail without bond pending his first court appearance. And sadly for our Florida man, the jail does not have a Wi-Fi connection. I
0: can't think of a sadder way to end this episode.
1: It's too good. Now, if you like this episode, please rate a review, rate it for us so other people can find it. But thank you so much for being with me, Tom. I think we should avoid Florida from now on. What do you think?
0: Well, I'm going to avoid Florida, man.
1: (laughs) Even better. He can escape Florida, as we well know.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to all of the stories in the show notes. So if you'd like more information, you can click through the links and uh, check out these stories. I hope you will join Christy and I again next time when Two Gurus Talk Compliance, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.